This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're still alive, which means that you've survived one of the greatest threats to our collective health in this lifetime. COVID-19 killed over a million Americans, but thanks to the tireless efforts of people like Dr. Anthony Fauci, the rest of us were spared. Dr. Fauci retired this week after over 50 years of public service. And while some critics cheered his exit, another had this to say. And a young guy came up to me, very nice guy. He said, you got no love for Elon, bro? And I was like, I said, no, I, I don't, but it's not just Elon specifically. I have a problem with any richest man in the world who comes to this country to casually slander a doctor who devoted his entire life to protecting our children from HIV and COVID and Zika and swine flu and Ebola disease while you're off playing grab ass with Trump and firing rockets into space to prove your penis works. It's just a general, not specific. So the answer is, as long as he's attacking and spreading lies about decent Americans who've been doing He's been doing his best to protect the world since before this vomit casserole was born. I got no love for Elon, bro. And in other news, cryptocurrency was all fun and games until major companies started tanking and then taking millions of investor dollars with them. Tuesday, Sam Bankman-Fried sat in the Bahamas courtroom with his parents looking on. The Bankman-Frieds are Stanford law professors, and allegedly, his mother laughed at various moments during the court proceedings. Probably because it's hard to come to grips with your kid being a criminal. But I bet it sunk in pretty quickly when Sam was denied bail. And his parents' legal expertise is going to come in handy. So here's the case against Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as they call him and his company, a cryptocurrency exchange, the hedge fund called FTX, which is currently in bankruptcy proceedings. The Securities and Exchange Commission says Bankman-Fried is charged with defrauding customers out of billions of dollars and orchestrating a massive years-long fraud. They also say he diverted billions of dollars from the customer funds for his own personal benefit. Billions of dollars have not been accounted for since FTX collapsed. In wake of FTX's bankruptcy, the entrepreneur has left investors with nothing while still owing creditors over $3 billion. Federal charges that were unsealed on Tuesday include eight counts of wire fraud, money laundering, violations of security laws, and other financial crimes, for which SBF could face over 100 years in prison. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is also filing charges. SBF is thought to have lost roughly $7 billion in customer cash. But who knows? I mean, who knows? No one. And why? Because SBF didn't keep records of any kind, and he even gave his crazy ex-girlfriend an arm of the company to bankrupt for him. Now, according to lawyers, this is really old-fashioned embezzlement. It's not sophisticated at all. But the guy behind it, SBF, seems mystified by how it all happened. This one is unusual, and it's unusual in the sense that literally, you know, there's no record-keeping whatsoever. It's the absence of record-keeping. Employees would communicate, you know, invoicing and expenses on, on Slack, which is, you know, essentially a... Uh, you know, a, a way of communicating for chat rooms. Uh, they use QuickBooks, a multi-billion dollar company using QuickBooks. QuickBooks? QuickBooks. 
Nothing against QuickBooks, very nice tool. SBF was also an equal opportunity political donor seeking to influence lawmakers by giving money to Democrats outright and the Republicans through dark money back channels. Neither party has said yet if it will return the large donations, but who knows, we'll see. Have you any idea what the total money in and the total money out of FTX was? We don't have a full accounting at this early stage, no. Do you know how much was in tokens? So let's say I have Dogecoin, or I don't even know how you say it, but I have 10 Dogecoin, which a year ago, is it Dogecoin or Dogecoin? Doge, Dogecoin. All right, Doge, I have 10 Dogecoins, all right? A year ago, 10 Dogecoins, for sake of argument, was worth $1,000, so 100 bucks a coin. I put that in there, but Dogecoin today is worth like, I don't know what, say not nearly that much. I mean, how are you gonna evaluate that? The Bahamas prison where FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried is being held was flagged by the United States for having harsh conditions due to overcrowding, poor nutrition, and inadequate sanitation, along with your friendly neighborhood rats, maggots, and whatever else. So lucky for Sam, the United States is expected to extradite his sorry ass back home to face charges. But this case all hinges on one question. Can prosecutors show that Sam knowingly committed these alleged financial crimes beyond a reasonable doubt? I mean, knowingly? I'm not so sure. I'm not sure because the kid looks and acts like a fucking dummy to me. I mean, a jury may view him differently. Who knows? And so stay tuned for that one. Maybe you just caught wind of the fact that one of the biggest rising stars in tech and finance was a guy who looks the way Cheeto dust smells. I mean, look at that. That dude looks like an Albuquerque dog walker at 6 a.m. Come on, Nacho, buddy. Do your business, bro. A whole new internet called Web3 is being developed and beta tested right now. The world has already changed and most of us don't even know it yet. Many of us don't understand the importance of the blockchain and the value it will have going forward. Unlike regular money or fiat, crypto isn't regulated by a monetary authority such as a central bank. And so you can now see how trouble might start. Oh, and as a quick reminder, FTX gained national attention with its extremely expensive Super Bowl ads this year, featuring quarterback Tom Brady, as well as comedian Larry David. A trade? Are you, are you sure? Not a trade trade. I'm trading crypto. FTX is the safest and easiest way to buy and sell crypto. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. Now, experts contend that digital assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum are still safe bets. And that cryptocurrency overall is too big to fail. These are early days in an industry that could revolutionize banking as we know it. But bad actors like SBF are educating the industry and the consumer. With any investment comes risk, so no matter what the future holds, Proceed with caution. It was all just so beautiful until it all came tumbling down and it turned out that FDX was actually just a bunch of kids living in a Bahamas penthouse doing a ton of drugs and sleeping with one another and spending gazillions of dollars that didn't actually really 
exist. If you hear the words, this is not financial advice or this is not stock advice when scrolling through TikTok or YouTube, listen. Federal law enforcement alleges that several financial influencers who are basically a bunch of fucking kids followed by hundreds of thousands if not millions of stupid kid traders were using their fans to bet big on stock trades all the while expecting to cash out before prices tanked. <laughs> the name of this particular scheme is Pump and Dump. And Wednesday, a Texas grand jury charged eight financial influencers, bros of a larger scale securities fraud conspiracy that racked up over, get a load of this folks, $114 million in less than two years. According to the SEC, one of the influencers who went by the stock sniper told his followers in his last tweet before arrest, I love my homies on here. The rest of you can keep swinging on my nuts. So yeah, this is not financial advice either, but throw the fucking book at these assholes and maybe send them to the Bahamas to share a cell with SFB, the FTX guy. Bro, it's only a DUI if you get caught. We'll get better at drunk driving, you idiot. My grandpa's a judge. You have nothing to worry about. Bro, if I'm racist, then why is Darius Rucker on my Spotify? Checkmate. Bro, tell me you've seen Wolf of Wall Street. You know who my dad is? Could you imagine what it would be like to be a minority? <laughs> Lying to the Russian government is just business as usual. You never take the blame for anything. You always just point the finger elsewhere and lay low, hoping blame never finds you. This is how Republicans have behaved since the insurrection. Take no blame and pretend it didn't happen. Well, too fucking bad, Mark Meadows, because you had a cell phone that told us a lot more of the truth than you ever did. It's damning. The new secret text messages which show the coup plot was coming from inside the building. And you may say, hey, Ari, I've heard you say that before. Yeah, we've been reporting on it when the evidence shows it, but this is new evidence. It reinforces that point the wider coup conspiracy, and it's bad. On Monday, Talking Points released a treasure trove of text messages from on and around January 6th that included texts from, get a load of this, from 34 sitting members of Congress. I mean, that's so fucked up, I gotta say it again. From 34 sitting members of Congress. Jeannie Thomas, as you already know, Jim Jordan, of course, and a bunch of GOP fucking bozos calling for martial law. And here's the greatest part, and fucking misspelling it. At least seven of them are on the House Oversight Committee. That's a panel that is moving into control of oversight, meaning in normal times, they would be the ones trying to, you know, see whether people are abusing government power or anyone in the executive branch or DOJ or the military is meddling in the election or politics. That's the normal time, but they are the problem. I say that based on the evidence, not as an opinion. On this score, on this issue, these are the arsonists who now will be running the fire department, which raises the question, is it really the fire department anymore? Scott Perry and his crank team of cyber dudes were ready to engage with the Italians regarding their vote-changing satellites. But only after they seized the voting machines. I mean, what the actual fuck were these lunatics thinking? Of course, they don't want it all coming out. Why? Because they look like a bunch of fucking idiots hopped on on Patriot Juice pretending that they're ready to throw down. I mean, Oh my God, it's hard not to hate these people. 
especially when you know that we'll be dealing with some of them for years to come. And somebody please tell me how Paul, most likely to be a serial killer ghost star, is still an elected fucking official. I mean, seriously, how? How is that possible? A country without a border is not a country. A nation without a people is not a nation. And that's Republican Congressman Paul Gosar of Arizona, keynote speaker this weekend at Fuentes' second annual America First Gathering. Hate doesn't change. Only the face of hate will change. Former Mesa cop Matt Browning has covered far-right hate groups for years. Nick Fuentes is just another person who's picking up where somebody else dropped off. And by picking up a sitting congressman to headline his event, experts say Fuentes' brand of hate gets some credibility. Here's a quick but really interesting story. I read in the Daily Beast an exclusive about being inside the jury that recently convicted the Trump Organization on 17 counts of tax fraud. And they write, and I quote, to avoid letting their personal feelings toward Donald Trump cloud their judgment, Jurors for the criminal tax fraud case against the Trump Organization had a novel strategy. They referred to the former president as Joe Smith. Anyway, the juror's identity has been confirmed, but they need to remain anonymous to avoid threats from you-know-who, from the angry fucking magas. that's who. Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? This journalist carefully detailed the way the 12 jurors examined the evidence, the way that they wrestled over the various criminal charges, and reacted to the lawyers' presentations during the two days of deliberations in a room at the Manhattan Criminal Courthouse. It really is fascinating, and it's a fascinating read, and it comes with a video too. So check out the article in the Daily Beast inside the jury room for the Trump or criminal trial. And may every jury that hears cases against Trump be so fair and methodical in their approach to a verdict. The commission is the premier UN body for promoting gender equality and empowering women. It cannot do its important work if it's being undermined from within. Iran's membership at this moment is an ugly stain on the commission's credibility. And I save this for last because it's important and it's just another way that the Biden administration is making a difference around the world. Wednesday, the United Nations voted to oust Iran from its women's rights panel, backing a resolution the US introduced after Tehran's crackdown on protests. The Biden administration spent weeks lobbying other countries to support the measure, and the resolution passed with 29 votes for kicking Iran out and 8 votes against it. 16 countries though abstained, and now Iran has been officially removed from the Commission on Status of Women, a body that is overseen by the United Nations. All we can do is hope that measure for measure, the young women who started this fight in Iran will live to see it all the way through. And now for the main event. Today we welcome back to our show, intrepid newsman Ali Velshi host of Velshi, and seemingly the favorite fill-in host of every single other MSNBC primetime news show. 
Velshi also reported live from the front lines of the George Floyd protest, and most recently, he dodged incoming fire from Russian artillery when he fearlessly reported live from the front lines in Ukraine. A concerned citizen of the world, Velshi seems to be everywhere that there is injustice. He has been a contributor at CNN, Al Jazeera America, NBC, to name just a few. Velshi is a prolific writer, and he's written books, articles, and columns for newspapers and monthly publications throughout the Northern Hemisphere. So let's go now to that conversation. So Ali, good to have you back on the show. I do, of course, have to just point out that you are wearing a tuxedo with a bow tie. I have to say you look extremely dapper, my friend. A little bit... Uh, Let's just say overdressed for mea culpa, but we'll take you any way that we can get you. All right. We're celebrating. It must be an anniversary or something. Your producer said I had to come in a tuxedo today. What was that about? I have no idea, but all I know is you are in a tuxedo. Now, let's just jump into (laughs) that. Let's just jump into this and talk about the case before the Supreme Court right now. And I'm referring to, you know, North Carolina Republicans want to give power to state legislators to decide election results without court oversight. And of course, you know, it threatens voter rights and democracy in general. So how likely do you think that the high court will rule in favor of what's being referred to as the independent state legislature theory? Uh, I I actually think there's a a better than even likelihood that either they will vote in favor of this fringe theory or they'll split the baby because you've got um, you've got two and a half justices, maybe three, uh, Gorsuch, Alito and and. Clarence Thomas sort of siding with it. You've got the progressive judges, three of them siding against it. Uh, so then you've got to see what happens with the chief justice, with Kavanaugh and with Amy Coney Barrett. We're not sure yet. Let me just put this clearly. This is fringe nonsense, right? This idea that legislatures are not subject to court review is is just anathema to what this country is built on. It's fringe nonsense. And this was always a fringy case. It's a theory that's been going around for a while. It gained steam around the end of the 2020 election between then and January 6th. It was actually fundamentally the the intellectual and legal basis untrue, but for what Donald Trump was thinking could happen in certain states where they could declare their own uh, winners to elections and and stuff like that. Uh, Judge Michael Ludick, conservative judge, the day before January 6th, Mike Pence had called up, Mike Pence's legal counsel had called Ludig up um, in Aspen or Vail, wherever he lives, and said, Mike Pence needs to not do what Donald Trump wants him to do. He needs legal cover for it. So Ludig, who had hardly ever tweeted before, put together sort of a seven or eight tweet thread that explained why this is not within the purview of the vice president to do what he was doing. And that was sort of the set of tweets that may have saved democracy because Mike Pence then went and said, can't do this. But it's all rooted in this nonsense theory that state legislatures can overrule the will of the people and not be subject to court interpretation. This actually might be, if you thought Roe was bad, Roe was at least highly specific about privacy and abortion. This is actually about democracy. This is about how elections are decided. So this is a very, very, very serious uh, court case. It's called Moore v. Harper. And I am not, I am worried. I am worried, Michael, that this uh, may not go the right way. And once you let these states, think about what happened in 2020. Think about all the states that tried their shenanigans. They tried to say Arizona tried it, people in Michigan tried it, Pennsylvania tried it. These are all these states that are allowed to say, 
we just didn't like the way that turned out. We're going to, you know, invalidate these votes or we're going to do certain things. Moore v. Harper, the actual case before the court is about redistricting. It's about gerrymandering. But it's fundamentally about the fact that can a state legislature do something uh, having to do with elections without uh, court oversight? It, it is just not a sound legal theory, but it's now before the Supreme Court. Well, actually, I would I would beg to differ on that. It is a sound legal theory, right? Because, in fact, the way that they're describing it is that in the Constitution, it says that election rules, and I'm going to quote, shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Now, I get your point in terms of how this is going to affect and how it could affect democracy. But there is certainly that line that many are holding their hat. Many of the supporters of this theory are holding their hat on. Don't you agree? So here's the distinction. We definitely want to believe that our legislators, our elected officials, can set the rules, right? We don't want courts setting rules. We want courts to be able to say, is that law that you set, are those rules you set in keeping with the Constitution of the state and the Constitution of the United States? That's what the issue is. But you're right. It's not It's not fringe to say that election rules are set by state legislatures and elections are carried out by state legislatures. But where they do something that is wrong or contrary to the Constitution, uh, which would be the case if you just decided to choose a different slate of electors, for instance, or at least should be subject to court review. The question here is, are legislators subject, legislatures or legislators subject to court review? That's the part about this that's fringe. Not the idea that the legislator does, legislature does set the rules for the elections. That we have accepted to be true. But the rules are the rules and everybody plays by them. If they've done something wrong or if the, the election doesn't turn out the way you want it, the legislature doesn't have the right to overturn that without being subject to court review. So that second part is the part that's fringe because they are arguing before the Supreme Court that courts cannot review these decisions that are made by legislatures. That's the crux of the argument there, and that's the crux of mm-hmm. the fringiness of it. Because when you decide the courts are not there for the legitimate purpose of review for which they were intended, then you get into dicey territory. So I had read that there was like this three-hour meeting between the justices of the Supreme Court, and the one who sort of baffled me the most is Samuel Alito. Because as we all know, Samuel Alito is a conservative justice. But he then questioned whether state court judges are now being given too much power over these redistricting decisions. And I'm going to read a quote that he had said at the time. There's been a lot of talk about the impact of this decision on democracy. Do you think it furthers democracy to transfer the political controversy about districting from the legislature to elected Supreme Courts where the candidates are permitted by state law to campaign on the issue of districts? I'm not really sure I fully understand which way the guy is thinking and which way he's going from that comment. Yeah, and it's it's an... For he's he's obviously a, a trained and expert jurist, so I'm I'm a bit surprised because what he's doing is there's a little gaslighting going on there, right? It's it's not we're not talking about transferring the authority for we're not trans- talking about changing anybody's jobs at all. Legislators and legislatures have a job to do as it relates to elections. Courts have a job to do as it relates to determining whether laws are are in keeping with the Constitution. 
They have different jobs. So you're not transferring controversy or, or politicization around gerrymandering or anything to do with elections to the courts. You're not shifting responsibility. And this is really important because no American should want the judiciary to do the job of the legislature or vice versa, right? They both have jobs to do. But when you look at things like Roe v. Wade and you say to yourself, we thought this right existed by virtue of uh, uh, something that happened in, a, in the Supreme Court in 1973, something that most people don't really understand because it was a, a privacy matter. It wasn't specific to abortion. But we we also know that we didn't legislate it in that time period. So when somebody came along to get rid of Roe v. Wade, as they did this year, mm-hmm. you, you now don't have laws that, that protect you. So there are two jobs. There's a job for legislators and a job for courts. What Moore, uh, Moore versus Harper is doing is erasing the responsibility of the courts. What Alito is arguing is, do you want to transfer that responsibility to the courts who are unelected? And why should the courts be making decisions? Well, no, nobody thinks a court should be sitting there and redrawing districts. That's not the job of the court. The court's supposed to look at the redrawn districts and say, do they comport to to what we understand to be the law? So Alito is 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 being at best, a little misleading. Now, look, I think these Supreme Court uh, jurisdiction uh, deliberations are amazing. I really like to listen to them. I l- really like to read dissents. And I think that they are in the business of asking unusual questions to cause the litigants to to uh, to express you know, their opinions on it. I don't think that's a good faith question. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And it baffled me because, you know, look, we know that there are three of, you know, three very conservative justices that are sympathetic to this theory. And we have, of course, Alito. Then you have Clarence Thomas and you also have Neil Gorsuch. But then again, right. to combat those three, you have three liberal justices that obviously are not just skeptical of the theory. That's like using a nice term for it. And that you yes. have uh, Sonia Sotomayor, you have Elena Kagan, and then you have Katanji Brown-Jackson. Well, now it comes down to the final three votes, which scares the yep. living piss out of me, because yeah, you have correct. Chief Justice Roberts, you have Justice Brett Kavanaugh, right? And on top of that, you have the last newcomer there, Amy Comey Barrett. This is a real problem. And again, I'm just not really sure how they're going to interpret this, how it's actually going to affect us. You know, there's a lot of argument in terms of how this really overall affects a presidential election. And some say that this could be the end of democracy. And then I've read others that turn around and say, no, no, no. In a presidential election, it has nothing to do with the states uh, and states' rights. That's now governed by federal law. So that would still be with the Supreme Court. Here's why I don't think that second argument works. And that is what uh, Mike Pence was being asked to do by Donald Trump on January 6th was certify a list of electors, which is not the list of electors that uh, that Congress otherwise had. In other words, there were people, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin was trying to submit a different list. A bunch of states were trying to say, those electors are not the electors, these are. And that would have gone to the vice president of the United States to then have certified or not certified. Now, Judge Ludic said, Mike Pence, this is not your job to do anything except sign the paper. Um, but if you go along with this independent states legislature theory, then you have a vice president who's in a position to say, 
Hmm. Right. Arizona said that the slate of electors I have is not the right slate of electors, or Georgia said that, or Pennsylvania said that. That's wild. And what these three justices, whom we don't know how they're going to uh, decide on this, need to think about is when you do things like this, it cuts both ways. Right? Yep. Because legislatures flip. Right. You, you you do not want to give this authority to Republican legislatures. You do not want to give this authority to Democratic legislatures. You don't want to give any legislature in America or the United States Congress the right to legislate without the redress of being sued in a court of law Yeah. in the end. And you may not like the Supreme Court. You may not like what the Supreme Court does, but it is a backstop to to bad legislation or let me rephrase that not bad legislation but legislation that you think is contrary to what your protections are under the constitution that's why i think this shouldn't be a conservative and 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 liberal issue and judge ludic is as conservative as they get this is a this is an older judge who's very very conservative doesn't have a liberal bone in his body and he says he's one of those people who says this might actually be the greatest threat to democracy before the supreme court uh in a very 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 long time Talking about threats to democracy, my friend, (laughs) Donald Trump is being, I mean, just shunned, even by Republican lawmakers after the midterms. I mean, we all saw how many of his um, favorable candidates have lost now. And now that he's openly embraced the likes of these neo-Nazis like Nick Fuentes and, you know, making stupid-ass comments like he wants to terminate the Constitution. And while this... And and then denying that he said that, even though it was posted. Correct. And while it all looks nuts to the casual observer, you believe he's still a danger to our society? Because one of the things that Trump said the other day is that he claims that he has 50% of Republican voters on his side. You agree with any of this? I think it's a trend issue, right? I think he's a he's a uh, helium balloon that is deflating. Uh, I think he's got a lot of people. I think if he uh, if if a year from now you and I are talking and he's still a presidential candidate, and a lot of people, I think you might be one of them, uh, think that that might not be a likelihood. He may he may bail out because he thinks he's going to lose. He may bail out because he might actually get charged with something, and he may have to make a deal and plead guilty to a lesser charge that doesn't allow him to run. There are a lot of things that could happen. Donald Trump can be as damaging whether he is a candidate for president of the United States or just a spoiler or just the guy that he is. The tweets he's had about Brittany, Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, what Could a terrible imagine? deal this was. Could you, you were actually imagine? The president? Well, yeah, no, it's ridiculous. And he was actually the president of the United States. If he had a better part of the deal that he could have done, uh, he should have done it. Um, the Taliban are, are are back in power because of a deal he cut. You can not like how, how Joe Biden handled the pullout of Afghanistan, but the deal was cut with the Trump administration who got invited, uh, you know, who invited the Taliban to Camp David. So Donald Trump should sit some things out, right? He should just sit some things out. And, and when he doesn't do it, He's now being told by people who were his supporters, the New York Post, Fox News, that maybe you should sit this thing out. That said, you know him better than anyone. He doesn't read tea leaves like that all that well, right? I don't know whether this causes him to want to double down or to say, maybe I won't win the presidency. Maybe I won't even win the Republican nomination. Well, that was a poll that came out not too long ago that showed that DeSantis uh, is beating him in terms of favorability, even in his now new home state of Florida, which yep. you know is obviously a red state. Um, I'm not sure where he comes up with this number of 50% of Republicans, but then again, 
I don't even know why I started to look because everything that comes out of his fucking mouth is a lie and it's all a lie in order to self-aggrandize himself, in order to right. bolt. In his mind, he thinks, if I say that 50% of all Republicans, if not more, if not more, like me, right? And yeah. therefore it becomes true. And his ultimate goal with that is to get people like Iran DeSantis and Mike Pompeo, potentially, um, you know, um, Chris Christie or Liz Cheney or whoever else may choose to run against him in a primary. He does not. And I say this again. He does not want to be primaried for two reasons. Right. For two reasons. First, if he loses, he looks like the biggest loser on the planet. In fact, if I had to make a comparison to it, it's almost like when Brett Michaels won The Apprentice. And I'll never forget, right. he came in and he said, I want to come back. And Donald said, when you win, and then you got to take your win and you leave. Don't come back, because if you don't win again, then you look like a loser. And that's got to be right. going through Trump's mind right now. If I don't even win the primary, what does that do to me? Now, it does a lot, right? I mean, it takes away the big grift. And you're right. He's got all this legal, um, all these legal matters now pending against him. There's more to come. Rest assured on that yep. one. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that on your show uh, on Sunday. Yep. Um, but I can turn around and honestly tell you that it's a big problem for him, especially if he doesn't win the primary. Now, the problem is, even if he But he has, probably will, right? He probably will, because he's got the Republican Party uh, apparatus in his pocket. I'm not really sure about that, because right now the Republican Party is so fractured as a result of the midterms. I'm not sure that somebody like Ron Romney McDaniel will end up endorsing him or doing things for him. She will if he becomes the nominee, but I'm not sure that they're going to do anything special for him. That's just my, that's my opinion. And at, on top of that, he has so many legal issues right now that are pending against him. And as I said before, more coming. I'm with you. I don't think he's going to be able to run at all. And I don't think he's going to be able to mount a successful campaign like he has before because these others who might primary him everybody now knows donald's weakness he's a big baby he's got a fucking thin skin he's got this fragile ego and you know we've played this sort of game before right if you were donald and i and i was me and we're debating on a stage no one's gonna let him run rough shot over them like ted cruz did the last time or virtually like all the 19 or 18 additional right. republican nominees no one's gonna let him do that like the way he did it even with hillary clinton lurking over you bouncing back and forth yep. this time then somebody like a chris christie would say do me a favor, Donald. First of all, you stink like crap. Go change your diapers, and then we'll come back to this, right? We'll come back to the debate. But I think you need a diaper change, Donald, right? You know, that's my new hashtag for him. Hashtag diaper Donald, right? And, and I think, first of all, I think it works. I don't know. I've seen a whole bunch of these memes that are going around of him playing golf. I mean, either he's got the cushioniest pants, or he's wearing at least a... <laughs> Quadruple extra large pair of Depends. I don't know what the fuck is going on there, but 
All I know is that's not normal, what's going on over there. And I'm not the first well, one to see it. Let's just take apart a couple of things you said here. Uh, uh, the, the, the head of the RNC has embraced a discussion that's going on in the RNC right now about it really hurt the Republican Party to keep talking about absentee ballots and mail-in ballots not being reliable. Like, it just hurt them. In places like Arizona, Republicans invented the mail-in ballot system. It was always a reliable thing. Now Donald Trump has spent years telling people mail-in bag ballots and, and absentee ballots and voting before voting day is all untrustworthy. And what it does is it caused a lot of Republicans and conservatives to say, well, my vote doesn't count or whatever, and they didn't vote. So number one, the Republican Party is doing their post-mortem, as it were. And one of the things they want to distance themselves from is, is this. That's going to be tough because it's all Donald Trump talks about. Donald Trump went out and 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 supported campaign uh, candidates in the 2022 midterms, and all he ever talked about was just grievance stuff, right? It's the diaper stuff you talk about. It was just all grievance. He was just carrying on about how he lost the 2020 election. They didn't even want him in Georgia uh, campaigning about this stuff because they saw that Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams. So the idea that conservatives and Republicans can handily beat Democrats in Georgia was already in place. There were there are more Republicans, you know, voting in Georgia than Democrats. Raphael Warnock won three times now. He's won an election because they don't the Republicans who would like to have a Republican party in the future and maybe have a Republican president and maybe have conservative voters are sitting there saying this dumpster fire is not helpful to us. So ultimately the question that again you probably know more about than I do is is will the Republicans a be able to separate themselves from him? B if they do it what does success look like for them? Who leads them? And is it is it a Trumpian character? Is it DeSantis who tries to be Trump light or Trump junior? Or do they actually do that thing where we saw a whole bunch of people win in this midterms, including Katie Hobbs in Arizona, um, uh, uh, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, uh, a whole bunch of people in Michigan who are just regular people. They, they, they actually appear to be the normal people that Donald Trump wants to be to everybody. They are just going to go and do their job. They're not going to be firebrands. They're not going to be fire and brimstone. They're not going to have lofty speeches. They are simply going to say, I think I'm the one who can do what it is you need to do. And is that where America is going? Is this this moment of sanity that we we need. The midterms made me think that Americans might choose sanity and democracy over and loudness. I and I said that on stupid. your show when you put up a yes. um, a kion that showed that most Americans have on their mind their number one concern was the economy. And then I think number three right. was democracy. And I said, Correct. I don't buy that. Yes, they can say that in a goddamn poll or whatever the hell, that how they no. got that information. But at the end of the day, I think everybody's biggest fear is actually losing democracy because the more people like yourself, myself, you know, guys like Justice Matters, right? Talk Glenn Kirshner yep. and Midas touching and we yep. start talking about the fact that yes. democracy is an experiment. And it is as easily lost as it was created. I think that's a problem. Yes. And, you know, I will acknowledge that at one point in time, I believe Donald's favorability. Like, I'm not talking about people who say, yeah, you know, I, I, maybe I liked him. I don't know. Right. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the diehard MAGA maggot supporters and that's what i'm talking about, the ones that are still funding him who don't have three cents to rub together but they're putting their last dollar into his bullshit pack 
Things like this neo-Nazi conversations that's going on. That's a real problem for the Republican Party, but a bigger problem for Donald. Then you have the anti-Constitution, the termination of the Constitution language. That, too, is a really big problem. And now you get to the other thing, which is the taking of these classified documents. You know, I don't know if you saw this, but the New York Times, I think, had an article um, a day or two ago that talked about how the FBI and the CIA have made claims that the number of agents over the course of 2022 has increased in terms of death and being outed. And look, when I was reading it, the first thing that I did is I scratched my head and I wondered whether Trump actually has that list. And if he does, you know, has that list been compromised because now more right. documents are found in a West Palm Beach storage facility, right? Right next to Mike Tyson's, you know, belt in Tom Brady's helmet. I Again, mean, you said on my show, you were quite sure there were going to be more documents all over the place. August 31. I turned around and then I tweeted. Uh, and I saw you the following day, September 1st. And I said to you, there is no doubt in my mind, knowing him, that you need to do like a Where's Waldo, wherever Donald Trump went. And I'm sure we'll talk about this again on the show. Wherever he went, if he went to um, Don Jr.'s house, you got to raid and search Don Jr.'s house. Ivanka and Jared's, if it's Eric and Lara's, doesn't make a difference. He was here on Fifth Avenue. He's been to his Trump National in Virginia. But more than just that, you know what else you need to do, Ali? You need to find out exactly who was at those locations when he was there. For all you know, it could have been an emissary of Mohammed bin Salman or Kim Jong-un. You would never know that shit. And maybe, they're, maybe they took photocopies. Maybe they took a copy of it um, with their iPhone. Who knows? But one thing I can yep. tell you, Donald Trump doesn't give a shit about this country because he lost the election. And in his mind, I believe he knows he's not even running, right? Because so far he has done nothing to demonstrate that he's running? Let me ask you this. You're even, you know more about politics than, certainly than I. Who's his campaign manager? Uh, that's a good question. Who's his finance chair, right? Who's his press, who's his press secretary? Well, there's always some fool who is a journalist who'd be prepared I'm, to do that. Uh, listen, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying right now, do you know who these people are? No, no, do you no, know no. you know who's scheduling no, him? A random assortment of lawyers who goes on TV and talks about him, and then that, that every lawyer gets in trouble or or or, or realizes they're right. on the wrong side of this thing or realizes their client isn't telling them the whole story. You know what you said to me on TV that really, really stood out for me, which makes a lot more sense now that there are more documents being found all over the place, is this idea that Donald Trump, as the the legal uh, you know juggernaut closes in on him, and he needs to make a deal at some point, does he say, "I'll tell you where everything else is. I'll tell you what I took. You know, I'll give you this stuff back in exchange for it. And if and if, and if you don't drop this Department of Justice, maybe I won't. Maybe you'll never find as out I, what I took. And as I said to you, right, he's going to use it. He will use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. He will use it to extort the country, to stop the litigation against him and the potential right. incarceration. However, while he may do that, and government may end up saying the information that he has is so vital to national security, will maybe just give you, um, you know, only a home confinement for whatever, but 
We're not done with X, Y, and Z. It could be Don, Ivanka, Jared, Eric. He don't give a shit. It could be Melania for all he cares, right? As long as it's not him. But like I said to you, he'd rather burn the country down. It's almost like if you had your suitcase lost by XYZ airline, and then you hope that the next time that you're on it, that the plane goes down. I mean, that's how stupid it is. He wants to burn down this country because we saw through the emperor's you know, clothes, right? And we realized that he's naked and that he's worthless and he can't do shit and didn't accomplish shit in four years other than tear things down. Right. I mean, he didn't build yep. a single thing. All he did is tear it down from, you know, the uh, FDA to the environmental controls and whatever. Um, look, let me just move on. And because we could sit and talk about this, loon, you know, this loony all day long. You, my friend, did a great piece on Judge Michael Ludig last week um, where you contended that he might have single handedly saved our democracy. Will you do me a favor? Will you please tell me and my listeners more about Judge Ludig and what you learned during your recent interview? And also, while you're at it, will you explain what the Electoral Count Act is and why it needs to be reformed? So let me start at the back. The Electoral Count Act, here's one of the very few things that um, that, that there's actually across the spectrum agreement that it needs to be reformed. And uh it's not that libertarians and conservatives and uh, and progressives agree with the way it should be reformed, but there's definitely an understanding that it needs to be fixed. It's it's technical stuff that has to do with the counting of the vote uh, on on January sixth. Um, so the bottom line is there's agreement it needs to be fixed. What we just don't have is a, a piece of legislation yet about how to do it, but it's being worked on, and that. Reverse gets me back to um, Judge Michael Ludig, whose opinion, whose tweet thread on January 5th of 2021 uh, was about this. Michael Ludig is a conservative jurist. He's really, really well respected in the area of electoral law. And when Donald Trump had called uh, Mike Pence in and said, I need you to do this for me on January 6th, Mike Pence understood that to be wrong and probably illegal, but he needed cover. Why one needs cover uh, from Donald Trump, you can explain better than than me. But Mike Pence did not want to just do what he believed to be right. He wanted legal cover. So his his attorney, outside counsel, contacted Ludig, and they talked about this. And Ludig said to his outside counsel, Pence has no authority to do this whatsoever. He, he He's right in saying this is not within his power. He needs to certify the election, and that's the end of it. And the lawyer called back and said, he needs you to do something. He needs you to say something. And Ludig's like, what, what can I do? What can I say? So he wrote this out, this, this opinion out. And then he broke it into a series of tweets and he tweeted out. He hadn't tweeted much before that. He probably tweeted five or six times. This guy now has 70,000 followers on Twitter. Um, and he tweeted out this whole thing. And that's all Mike Pence needed. He just needed the cover because the media then jumped on it and said, wow, this respected jurist says that uh, this is what has to happen on January 6th. Because remember, before January 6th, neither you nor me nor anybody else knew what was actually supposed to happen because we've never paid attention to that particular day, the certification of the election, because somebody wins the election and that's the day it's certified. It's all a technicality, including the Electoral Count Act. And so there's two distinct problems. One is the Electoral Count Act needs to be modernized, but it is not the whole enchilada. It's not the underlying problem about what happened on January 6th. It's a side matter that needs to be fixed, and we're working on that. More importantly, 
we have to understand that what we can't have Judge Ludig or Brad Raffensperger or Al Schmidt in, in Philadelphia or these random people who stood up to Donald Trump when he tried to intimidate them into changing around vote counts or the, the people in Michigan. You can't our, our democracy can't depend on people like that. So we've got to fix the things we can fix. We have to understand the law and back full circle. That's why this uh, Moore v. Harper case is really important. And the person who told me Watch this Moore v. Harper cases before the Supreme Court now, because this is going to be the most serious thing that the Supreme Court is deciding this this year. They're going to decide it next year. Uh, but it's going to actually make uh, Roe v. Wade uh, pale in comparison because it's going to be so much more detrimental to our democracy was Judge Michael Ludig. This is a guy who is out there. Uh, who's a conservative? Who's out there saying this? You, you are. We're going to break democracy with this stuff. So this is a guy to watch. If you don't follow him, you should follow him. He's a he's a really really respected electoral jurist. But it's very hard, Michael, to make this stuff interesting to people, right? I'm I'm glad you and I are talking about Moore v. Harper, and I've been talking about it on the show, and and people are writing about it. And if you look through your feed, there'll be a lot of stuff on this North Carolina case. I would implore people to read this. People do not necessarily read up on Supreme Court cases mm-hmm. that are not big and sexy. This is not big and sexy, and it's really, really important. Yeah. You know, I want to just touch on something which is local. You know, obviously, I was on home confinement for a while and even still right now dealing with this supervised release nonsense. So I don't really travel out of the New York area all that much. But I recently was in Los Angeles. I was doing a Mea Culpa Live event there. And I noticed, of course, the increase in homelessness. And... I also, when I was in D.C. at Politics and Prose, I went there to talk about revenge, about the book. Um, I noticed in Washington, D.C., an increase in um, the homeless population. Now, here in New York, in New York City specifically, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, and I thought that New York was bad really until I started walking around Los Angeles and I realized just how bad it is. Here in New York, Mayor Eric Adams is, he's taking heat right now um, for violating the rights of mentally ill people against their will if if it's deemed that they are a harm to themselves or to others. Now, in your opinion, what was behind this move to deinstitutionalize mentally ill people? And of course, you know, they're talking about basically taking these individuals who are homeless on the street and acting either erratic, looking like they can harm themselves. And it's going to be, I believe it's going to be a brutal winter. So, you know, obviously we'll be able to get them off the streets. But what options does somebody like Mayor Adams uh, and other custodians of major cities have against, you know, homelessness and then basically taking them because of their, you know, mental illness? It's a very complicated issue, and it's bigger than Mayor Adams, and that's part of the problem. He's trying to respond to constituents. And by the way, they're in the places you said, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Washington. Homelessness has increased uh, during COVID in America in general, but it's a long time coming. This started in the 50s and 60s. There used to be these hospitals that people were institutionalized in, many against their will generally because they were a harm to themselves or other people are deemed by a court to be a harm to themselves or other people. And then we discovered certain antipsychotic drugs and certain uh, pills that were supposed to help people with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and things like that. 
And we we sort of did a wholesale change between the mid-50s to the mid-60s, where Medicaid decided it wasn't going to pay for the institutionalization of the mentally ill. There was a mentally ill, there was a there was a real move toward getting people out of institutions and getting them outpatient treatment. And that moved into the 80s. And you started to see more people on the streets. And, you know, along with that, there was a sense that there should be homeless shelters for people and people should be able to have uh, mental health care, except that it never really happened. Right. Mental health care does not have equivalency to other things. If you feel like you got a flu or something, you have no problem calling up your boss and say, I'm not coming to work today. I think I'm sick. People don't do that about mental health. So what we have is people who slip through the cracks. They live in the streets. Um, in the in the last uh, couple of years, we've seen violent attacks in some cases. So people are very worried. They go on the subway. There have been a couple of instances where people have been pushed into the subway tracks and hit by trains. So you can always have somebody institutionalized if you can determine, and generally a court or a magistrate or someone has to determine that they are a risk either to themselves or to others. But what you've got in a lot of these cities is not exactly that. You've got people who are yelling on a street corner or shadow boxing, or they're urinating in a subway car, or they just won't get off a subway car. They're sleeping and they've got their whole setup and all that. And so what Mayor Adams is now saying is that police will have the authority to make a determination that these people can be removed from public areas and the subway and taken to a hospital. Now, that doesn't fully mean institutionalizing them, except all the area hospitals are like, we don't have capacity. We don't we can't deal with that. If you come in with somebody who's not a threat to themselves or to anyone else, but they're mentally ill, we're not built to deal with that because we all dismantled those systems over the course of, of the last literally 70, 80 years. So that's the problem. He's responding to constituents who say, I can't take mentally ill people all over the city where I am. So you need to do something about this. I will say the problem is that when you think about police shootings, police, people who die in police custody in mm -hmm. this country, about 20% of them are people who suffer mental illness. So I'm not saying whose fault this is. I'm saying it's, it's, it's a bad combination, mentally ill people and police who may be well-intentioned, but do not have uh, the, the training necessary to deal with mentally ill people has not proved to be a very good recipe in America. And I think there are a lot of police who are like, I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want uh, people calling and, and having us go into the subway. Now, if you get off the subway in New York, you know this. I got off at 72nd Street the other day. Every single car had a cop in front of it. So there's a show of force of police in the subways these days. These are police, by the way, who used to be above ground. They're now below ground. And I spent a, a little time in New York working with the long-term homeless, where we'd go out overnight and try and find housing for people who'd been on the streets for two years or more. And let me tell you, of people who choose to be out in the street, choose is the wrong word, who live on the street for more than two years, almost all of them suffer from mental illness, and almost all of them have some addiction. So you have to solve these problems. Housing is generally the first option, but there's nothing to do. When these cops take somebody off the subway and put them in an ambulance, and they have to ride, I believe, in the ambulance with uh, the ambulance attendant, so there's no harm to them, and take them to an emergency room. Now you got cops involved in the system. Now you got someone who's mm -hmm. got uh, who might right. have an arrest record, who might be in the system, or might have been in the system already. You got the justice system involved, and no one's getting any better mental health treatment. So I'm not telling you I know the answer to this. And when I did this story, I got a lot of feedback on all sides. It's a very, very important and hot story. And so, Ali, then it is then it is our fault. It's our fault collectively, because I believe in the United Jordan. States, we have more than a half a million Americans, more than a half a million Americans yes. that are homeless. And yes, it should not be not in this country. Yes. 
Do I have the answers? No, but I will tell you one of the biggest problems, and there's a guy that's around the corner from me. He stays by the church, and I always give him, you know, money. You know, every time I walk past him, you know, I'll go and I'll buy from the food cart that's across the street. I'll pick up coffee. I know exactly how he likes it with a donut wow. and so on. And I, I've been doing it probably for 20 years. It's the same guy. And he's... Most people stay away from him because he does look like he's nuts. I actually once, this true story, I put, he was like rolling around on the floor on the street in a puddle after a massive rainstorm. And I grabbed him and I pulled him out of the water and I asked him what he was doing. It was dirty water. I went upstairs to my apartment. I came down with a towel and I gave him a towel and new sneakers. He was soaked, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, this man needs help. He really does. Yep. But the and I asked him, why don't you go to one of the shelters? It's, it's nasty out. It's horrible. So he goes, I'm safer on the street than I am in the shelter. And that's what a lot of people believe for a lot of reasons. There are weapons in the shelter. They're, under, they're understaffed. Uh, worst job in the world is working at a homeless shelter in New York City. They're understaffed. They're, uh, there's a great availability of drugs. Remember, a lot of these people are trying to combat their own addictions. Um, they're frightened. There's violence in those places. There's sexual assault. Um, our shelter system in New York, you're guaranteed shelter. You have a right to not sleep in the street. They will they will always have to get you a shelter spot. A lot of people choose not to be in them because uh, because they're they're unsafe. A lot of people who get actual housing, like an apartment, choose not to stay in them because they've been out in the street for a long time. They don't have the mental health care or the medication to sort of allow them to adjust. Their common uh, their their friends and their their familiarity is in the street. So it's just a big societal problem. And I I I do applaud Mayor Adams for trying something. I don't think it's the right thing, but it's not just Mayor Adams. So maybe this will provoke a broader conversation with all of society to say, was deinstitutionalizing the right thing to do back in the 50s and the 60s? It sounded right, right? You don't want people in these, remember we, there'd be movies sure. about mental hospitals and sure. one flew over the cuckoo's nest. what right looks like, but, but this isn't it. This pervasive long-term homelessness and, and the uh, afflictions of the, the mentally ill and the addictions, that's not it. What we do have are studies that prove that if you give people housing first, then they can you can help them with their mental health and their addiction needs. You cannot help somebody off of those needs if you do not give them housing. So a lot of people say, don't give people housing if they if they won't go clean first, if they won't commit to getting off drugs. Well, you can't go clean. It's all part of a process that if you do not have a roof over your head, a dry place to sleep, and and your stuff's not going to get stolen, and some food in your and some food in your belly, sneakers. And some food in your belly, you can't make other decisions. I totally I right. To when when I was in Eastern Europe and we we had those refugees coming from from over, you know coming into uh, Hungary or Poland, what's the first thing you did? Food. Why does Jose Andres go around and, and feed people a hot meal? Because you're thinking these are refugees. You're not going to feed them every meal for the next six months because you cannot make any decisions when you are hungry and you are cold and you are wet and you do not have your your meds. So. We need to have a societal discussion about how we deal with all these folks in the streets. It's not enough to say I'm scared of them on the subway. That That's a valid view. You might be scared of them. But how are we going to fix this? Because we can. It's 2022. We can put people, you know, we're going to put people on Mars soon. We can, we can deal with people who have mental illness and addictions. I totally agree. So let's talk now about world politics for a minute. Right. Because you've covered global economics and recently discussed the backsliding of democracy worldwide. And this is something that I want my listeners to really pay you know, very close attention to my friend Ali here, the expert. 
Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, only about 20% of the world's population lives in a democracy or in an otherwise free country, right? Yep. I mean, that's an amazing... When I heard you say it, I was like, is that really right? I mean, I knew it was obviously less than 50%, but 20%. I didn't realize it was that low. Why is, why is this? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Obviously, so much of the world looks at America. They look at democracy favorably, right? You see what's yes. going on in Iran, as an example. They see, because of social media, because of these platforms, you know, they, they see other countries and how they deal with their population. I mean, is democracy more difficult to maintain than, say, an autocracy or a dictatorship? And obviously, we all have our opinions on that one. It's a, it's a really good question. And part of the thing is what you define as democracy, right? There are lots of people in the world. So when you say that number seems very low, it's because if you count all the people who vote in elections in the world, there's lots more than that. But by the way, you can vote in Iran in an election, right? But nobody can run in that election who's not chosen by uh, this committee of people who determine whether you are sufficiently religious. You can vote in elections in China, um, even in Hong Kong, but you can't vote. <laughs> you can vote for an election in Russia too. But Putin's going to win no matter right, what. You can't vote for somebody who says that there's a war in Ukraine. So there's lots of people who vote, but they don't live in democracies. And the, the second issue is that in history, including in Germany, uh, in 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 uh, in Nazi Germany, people give up their democracies. People vote people into power. They're not all revolutions, right? It's not dictators don't all take over by revolution. We give up our power because what we do is we sufficiently threaten the voter into thinking, what, what was Donald Trump's expression? I alone can fix this. That is the that is the stuff that that wannabe dictators say. This is a big problem. It's a big mess. I can fix it for you, but you've got to give me the authority. You've got to give me the right. Right back to Moore v. Harper, the Supreme Court case we're thinking about. Let the legislature decide. So you vote to let the legislature decide, and then the legislature decides about things that are not in your best interest, or at least in the democratic interest. What viewers will be, listeners will be surprised to hear is that democracy is going the wrong way in the world. We're not building more democracies. We've got fewer of them. More and more countries are moving toward autocracy and dictatorship, and people are choosing it. That's the dangerous thing, which is why this Ukraine war, I spend so much time talking about it, because I want to remind people that this was a country minding its own business, whose men and women, by the way, are fighting. They're taking up arms. People, civilians, have taken up weaponry, like in the American Revolution, to protect their democracy. And all eyes should be on that thing. If people are bored about that thing, just remember, we don't have tanks coming through our streets. We don't have our democracy being taken away by force and weaponry. We've got something else going on here. But look to those people and say, may we be as brave as those Ukrainians in preserving our democracy here in the United States. And I will tell you, the midterm elections gave me some faith that Americans are listening and they are taking this seriously. But democracy is not for free. I've said before, democracy, think about it as a cactus. It doesn't take much work, not hard work. But it takes some. You can't take a cactus, bury it under your bed, and hope it survives for for twenty years. You gotta you gotta give it some sunlight once in a while. It might need some water, not a lot, but you have to take some care of it. And and now it's not enough to vote. That used to be the price of admission. Now you got to make sure someone else is registered. Now you got to make sure you show up at your school board meeting. Now you have to understand who's banning books in in your community. Now you have to you know make sure that your your party is putting up candidates who are not liars and gaslighters. It, voting is not. We don't all vote anyway. That would be beautiful if we all did. But you've got to do now more. You want to be a citizen. You you have that your responsibility toward democracy is greater than it's ever been. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. But since we're talking about Ukraine, Zelensky just won Time Magazine Man of the Year. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I was a little upset because I thought it was going to be me. But I understand why they would give it to Zelensky this year. Now, we all know because I spoke to you when you were in, the, in, you know, in Ukraine, and you've reported extensively on the region. What do you know that's currently going on there? Are you staying in touch with any of the ground yeah. forces that are still there? Because it sounds like Putin is trying to freeze the Ukrainian people to death, yes. right, this winter, so that he could basically steal their land. I mean, that's all this yeah. really is. Yeah. This is a land grab because there's oil there or yeah. that there's natural resources for him. And I don't mean for Russia. I'm talking about for him. It's probably not that simple. But is there any end in sight? And also, is there any truth to the rumors that Putin might be sick? So intelligence uh, people who study this stuff very closely and have been looking at all these images of him and his movements and his behavior have have indicated that there is no there's no evidence of it and they can't determine anything from any of the pictures or videos that they see that suggest that he is sick there's some strange behavior he exhibits he he, he now clenches onto tables uh he doesn't keep anybody near him which might just be a safety thing but you know nobody's near him there's been speculation of parkinson's and and cancer but no no uh reputable intelligence agency has been able to corroborate that which and i say that because British and U.S. intelligence about Ukraine has been very, 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 very strong. Um, so Putin may, you know, he was a KGB head. He may uh, be able to hide all this stuff, but uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any corroboration to the fact that he's sick. I will say this, and I'm not a lawyer. I think what they're doing is a war crime because they're taking out uh, electrical uh, fuel depots around the country under the guise of these being uh, things that help the military. But they're taking them out in Lviv and Kiev, nowhere near the front. Like it's one thing if there's a border town um, that you're fighting in and you take out their electricity, but you shouldn't be taking out electricity for consumption of humans in winter anyway. So I believe this is a war crime. Now, war crimes don't matter if you never uh, arrest anybody and they never face justice. And by the way, the United States is not a party to the International Criminal Court. So that's another big debate. We, we, we can't prosecute war crimes here because we don't participate in the war crimes concept. However, put that aside, the Ukrainians are bloody strong people. Remember Stalin, and he killed a lot of them, but he 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 did this. Mm -hmm. He starved them of their own wheat. Um, so to the extent that that uh, it is a really cold place, and 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 having people's heating cut off is a really bad thing, and people will die. I am not sure that the will of the Ukrainian people uh, is is going to be broken. And in the end, the will of the Russian people is not with this war. The will of the Russian soldier is not with this war. They're ill-equipped. Meanwhile, Ukraine's being equipped by NATO and the West with increasingly more sophisticated stuff. They bombed something hundreds of miles inside of Russia the other day with a drone. Right? I mean, this is this is a complicated war. Russia is losing territory because it takes humans to occupy territory. And these Russian soldiers are uninterested. And by the way, while it's cold in winter, the Russian soldiers also don't want to be part of that. So I think... Uh, Vladimir Putin's losing this war on several fronts. What he does have in his favor is uh, a continued alliance and a growing alliance with Iran, which is, by the way, our fault as America, because mm -hmm. that Iran deal could have been some place where we had influence over Iran, but we walked away from that. So now Iran has become more hardline. I'm not blaming America for Iran having hardliners. I'm saying we've lost our influence over Iran. Russia's getting weaponry from North Korea. Can you believe that? North Korea's got weapons to give people? 
They're getting weaponry from North Korea. They continue to sell oil to China and they continue to sell oil to India. And remember, you need no other customers in the world if you've got India and China buying your stuff. So don't count Russia out yet. He, the, the the moral victory is with Ukraine, but this thing could be drawn out. He's well, econ- look, economically, Russia can continue to advance this war almost indefinitely sure. because Putin, very much like Trump, truly doesn't give a shit about his people. Right. He doesn't give a shit about the Russians. Ah, give him some cigarettes, some vodka, some sugar. They'll figure out how to make a meal out of it. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. That's his mentality as Correct. a former KGB guy. Just keep him drunk, have him cigarettes, and, you know, we'll just do He could use all of this money that he's making right now on oil. And I blame America for this, too, because— and. Look, I got a lot of ribbing the last time I said it. I truly believe that we have more than enough, because I've read the studies, 360-some-odd billion barrels of oil in the United States. Now, some of it you may not want to get to because it's environmentally polluting and so on. But we have enough oil to feed the world for 50 years. If we do what we should be doing, first of all, we would wipe out our national debt, first and foremost. All right. Second of all, we could bring the price of oil back down to like numbers that you haven't seen since the 60s and 70s. Right? I mean, because we just have so much of it. Okay, there's a cost to refine it. I get it. No problem. But what we really do there is we put an end to Putin's cash cow. We put an end to Saudi Arabia's cash cow and the Emiratis and all of these, right? Iran, the same thing. And we now take away their natural resource, which gives them the money to promote terrorism and to basically destroy democracy. So, you know, when we go back to that question about 20%, you really want to see more than 20% of the countries out there with democracy take away the the money from the people that are running these autocracies, these monarchies, these dictatorships, all right? You wouldn't have, for example, Kim Jong-un flying missiles. Why? Because they need, they need oil. You want oil? No problem. Yep. You got to come to us. You have to come. It's just that simple. And you know what? I've always said this, and I've said it on your show. I've said it on almost every show, and it's a line that my father has always used. If you have a strong America, you have a strong world. If you have a weak America, you have a weak world. And that's why I believe that democracy is the most important thing in the world. And that's why what what we did in the Trump years where we we decided it was America first and it was going to be isolationist. And there's always tendencies. Every country goes through this. Even where I'm from in Canada, there are people who think we shouldn't have troops elsewhere and we shouldn't do stuff. It's just not the right way to think about the world right now. Not just economically, because we're we're all intertwined anyway. But but just from if, if you are on the right side of democracy right now, you want to be able to export that. You want people to believe that. You want immigrants from those places. You want your influence to be felt around the world. And that is what Joe Biden is doing. So for all the people who think the guy's not a great president, he is reminding us in the in the grand tradition of American presidents who go out there. Remember, this Joe Biden, for all the people don't like, for all his 47% approval rating or whatever it is, this might be the guy who brought America's greatest adversary to their knees, right? This, this Russia is exposed as a fraud in a way that it has not been. We have we have had this image and this fear of Russia for so long, and now we find out that they're, as we say, they're not even the second best army in Europe, right? This is 
Joe Biden might succeed in doing this, but that is because you're right. A strong America makes a strong world. People may not like that. They may think that that's chauvinistic and all, all sorts of things, and they may be right. Maybe some people think America doesn't need to be the world's policeman, but we do have things that we can export to the world. And some of that is we have to demonstrate at home and say, you can you can do this too. And And this tie between America and Ukraine right now is really magical. It's sort of like the revolutionary tie between the revolutionary Americans and French in France at the time, right? France was America's first ally. France was the 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 powering of the intellectual engine that was the American Revolution. In my mind right now, America fixing its democracy and Ukraine fighting for its democracy is something that will go down in history as a moment in which maybe democracy around the world was saved from going the wrong direction. And as it should. Now, Ali, you were raised in Canada, as was my father, right, right? Um, in Toronto. What's your take on the English monarchy? I mean, is it time for them to just pack it up, or is it still an important part of the Commonwealth's identity? Um, and, you know, and still valuable now that the Queen has passed away. I mean, look, royal gossip certainly sells newspapers, yeah, that we sure. all know. But is the monarchy worth what taxpayers pay for it? No. And and I'll tell you, I, I have a, a Canadian $20 bill enlarged in, as a piece of art in my kitchen, which has a big picture of Queen Elizabeth. Um, my grandmother liked that lady, and, and I've got no beef with uh, the royals themselves. But we have... We're absent critical thinking when we forget that the, the British monarchy is synonymous with British colonialism. And British colonialism has been nothing but a damaging force. I was born uh, in a in a colonial country. I was born in Kenya at post-colonialism. My parents came from South Africa, which had been a British colony. Uh, my great-grandparents came from India, which was a British colony. India was a perfect example. Before the British took over India, India was headed to being um, one of the most economically productive countries in the world. India is a wreck right now. Uh, um, it is it is a country with uh, close to 20% illiteracy. That was just never the case. This was a completely literate country. British colonialism wrecked most of the world. And I think you can separate that from Queen Elizabeth and the royals. But at some point, and it was kind of gross when I watched all the, the pomp and circumstance after the Queen's death. And again, I really I really liked the Queen and I was I was sorry that she passed. But we we have to be critical thinkers. We have to say that whole institution of royalism, uh, royalty, was synonymous with colonialism. British were not the only colonialists. Obviously, the French were, the Belgians were, the the Dutch were, the Spanish were, the Portuguese were. It was really bad stuff, and and it did wreck a lot of the world, and it wrecked a lot of the people of the world. And so uh, I think it is time for us to be sophisticated thinkers about this and say. I like the royals. They're kind of interesting. They make for good fodder. But what it represents is actually some a piece of our history that we need to bury and and move on from. We 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 should not live in a colonial world. We should not be um, we should not be fetishizing royalty in a world where democracy is actually um, you know in 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 peril. It's it's a it's a relic from a time gone by that we should probably put to rest. You know, it's funny you say you don't have a beef with the royals. I have a beef with the royals, right? I'm not sure if you know this. There's a documentary that's coming out about Meghan and yep. Harry and so on. And there's this entire, and it's very funny because I started, my phone blew up starting with the Daily Mail. In the documentary, there's this swarming group of reporters and, you know, with cameras and people just, you know, shoving it must have been four or five hundred reporters swarming onto this car and the next thing you see you see megan inside with harry and she's got a tear in her eye and he of course being the loving husband is wiping it off and so on that crowd was not there for harry and for megan 
They stole the clip of me when I was leaving my building. That's me. No way. That it's not Harry. It's me. You can look this up. They I'm not. You can't look this the, up. The, the, the image free from. They didn't superimpose. They they didn't. They froze it and then they they shot it next inside the car. So you see all of these. It was the day that I was leaving wow. my apartment building to head up to Otis. Yeah, because you had when, you had you, see the you had actual people who were falling. That must have been five. That must have been five hundred. Take a look at the scene. But if you have a chance, That's Google wild. it. It's just type in Michael Cohen, uh, Megan Markle. Prince Harry, you know, documentary. And you'll see, it is so freaking funny. So, yeah, I have a beef. I want to get paid for it. You know, it wasn't easy for me. I mean, you know, look, all they have to do is just, you know, raise a tax upon all of their people, subjects. their, their, you know, their subjects, and send some of it over that my way. Yeah. Don't be like Donald, Harry. All right, Harry and Megan, don't be like Donald. You have to learn to share. You know, look, Ali, the hour goes yeah, by very, does. very quick. I have one last yeah. question for you. And again, because you're just so prolific in this news and around the world. As we come to the end of the year and we look back at the year of 2022, what would you say was the year's most important news story? Wow, it was. It, 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 this is a hard year to make that choice. Um, I... I I think there were two parts of it. They were equidistant from either end of the year. Uh, the most important news story was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and by the way, I think one year ago, most most of our viewers couldn't find Ukraine on a map, certainly couldn't discuss the importance of NATO and why Ukraine wasn't a member of NATO and what really happened in 2014 with Crimea. But it became synonymous with the struggle for democracy, which we had been undertaking here in the United States. So I, I do find that to be the most important story. But also equidistant from the end of the year was, was November 8th and the midterm elections. Uh, you and I talked a lot about the fact that you, the economy uh, was, was seemingly front and center on people's minds and could they walk and chew gum at the same time? Could they say, yeah, I'm worried about inflation and the economy. I'm also worried about democracy. You said they could on my show, and in the end they could. And so I leave this year uh, hopeful that that uh, people are more nuanced um, and they are thoughtful and, and democracy does matter here in the United States and democracy continues to matter over in Ukraine. The whole world is had their, their senses heightened toward democracy. So I think those are the two things that 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 split the ticket for my uh, you know the most important stories of the year. Can I add one? Yeah. One the the uprising in Iran. Yes, thank you. I for just find that. that to be so extremely important. You know, watching what's going on there and the death of this young woman because she removed her headscarf. Um, I just. Again, as an American, and I, I was born in America, I'm fortunate, as so many of my listeners you know, are, I was born in a country where you can wear whatever you want. You can't wear nothing, but you, know, you have to wear something. You don't have a specific dress code. You don't right. have you know, um, morality police. Tell me, could you imagine in yeah. this country if we had morality police, right? which I could see somebody like Donald Trump wanting and it would be based on his right. whims and his. I just think it's so important, you know, um, what's happening. It's about time, uh, as we've seen at least here in this country. You know, women are capable and more capable of doing jobs, right? In the here, at least in the United States, at least in government, uh, and you know, in every single aspect of our lives, 
more so than even yeah. the men. You know, that's why I keep saying I would love to see a woman president already. I'd love to. I, and that way I can at least put to rest, you know, whether, you know, they would be like a uh, like the iron knicker. Right. You know, uh, or they would be like a gold in my ear. I, I mean, I just I start to watch and I see. And I believe that that to be at least one of the top and, and, three and as you say, and uh, powered by women. That that the the, the, yes. the chant that they they say it's a Persian chant. It's three words: Zan, Zindagi, Azadi. Zan means the women. Zindagi means your life, and Azadi means freedom. That's the chant: women for life, for women for life, and for freedom. And it's 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 going on every day. That thing has not died down. And and there are some observers who say. This could be the end for the Iranian regime. I will warn everybody that every time we think it's the end for the Iranian regime, they become more brutal and they crack down. But maybe 2023 will be a year where we see these some of these brutal regimes um, start to crack. Amen to that. And my friend, I will be seeing you very soon. Thank you as always for joining us, for enlightening us with your intelligence, your experience, your, your, your wisdom. So thank you, my brother. It is always good to see you. And I'll be seeing you and speaking to you again very, very soon. And now for today's mea culpa. With so much going on right now, the end of the year reminds me of that Hunter S. Thompson quote about death that ends something like, We are skidding in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, Wow, what a ride! We're just two weeks left of 2022, and all that we have been through, yeah, wow, what a ride. Here we are rounding the corner into the end of the year, and so much is still left unresolved. Ten years after Sandy Hook, and almost nothing has been done about gun violence in America. This year, there's been 610 mass shootings. Let me say that again, 610 mass shootings, including the heartbreaking Uvalde school massacre. But 2021 was higher with 690 mass shootings. So, I mean, I suppose we should be grateful for the slight improvement, but still unresolved in why we can't stop killing each other. The Biden administration has put the first bipartisan gun safety legislation on the books in many years, but it's not anything like enough. But when will enough be enough? Gun violence shouldn't be a mystery to us. We've been living with it every day for years, and yet no real solutions. Still, our Supreme Court has been hijacked and turned into a radical right-wing theocracy with a bent towards authoritarianism and nostalgia just this year put an end to Roe versus Wade and just fucked everything up. American women have been reduced to second-class citizens. So again, I ask you, when will enough be fucking enough? But like a ray of sunshine, Katanji Brown Jackson now sits on that high court bench and let's hope that she outlives all the rest of them. This year, we saw some of the cool kids unmasked as bullies or worse, fucking idiots. Kanye, Elon, Trump, now there's a tweet that didn't age well. Comedians like Joe Rogan and Dave Chappelle crossed into some, some murky territory that most of us aren't sure is funny. However, this is funny if it weren't real. Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to impeach Joe Biden because... Wait for it. Because he brought Brittany Griner home. 
Yes, definitely impeach the guy who actually gives a shit. Unlike Trump, who knew about Paul Whelan being wrongly imprisoned in Russia and did absolutely fucking nothing to free him. But whatever, it's allowed. Because why? It's Trump. We are done imagining that he does anything for anybody but himself. It's also been a banner year for toxic masculinity. Brett Favre stole from Medicare, Novak Djokovic refused to get vaxxed, and perhaps the biggest fucking asshole of 2022, Vladimir Putin and his hideous invasion of Ukraine. This war is an atrocity that we haven't even begun to process. And maybe even the upcoming salvo for World War III. Then there were wars at home too, the slap heard round the world. Anyone? Ghislaine Maxwell went to jail for her part in the sexual depravity of many, many men. Ellen went off the air, and inflation is damned. Oil companies and pharmaceuticals made record profits. But, but, but we the people have endured. This year, the January 6th committee, I mean, and God bless them, stared down the beast that was the 2020 insurrection, collected all the evidence, and told the truth to the American people. The truth? I mean, what a fucking novelty. What a relief, because that's what we need on the heels of a disaster. A complete disaster report. That outlines the facts so that the same or similar event never, ever, ever happens again. So bravo to the January 6th committee. And bravo President Biden, who has had the most successful first two years of any president in the last 60 years. And listen to that, Donald. It's not you. Biden had the most successful first two years of any president in the last 60 years. The Respect for Marriage Act was signed this week. Various parts of Build Back Better are going into effect to secure infrastructure all over America. Jobs are up, the economy has taken a cautiously optimistic turn for the better, and recently we've made magnificent strides in science that prove that American ingenuity is alive and doing well. So as we skid out of this tough year and pause for the holidays, be grateful for all that is right with America and how lucky we are to all be a part of it. I mean, let me go back to saying what I said before. Wow, what a ride. And as always, thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa.